everybody. Welcome back to the Historical Paranormal Podcast. I am here coming to you from a very long rest, and that was mostly because I was working really hard, so not really a rest, but um, I wasn't able to do the podcast as much as I would like, but it was a really busy March, and it was a good March, so I'm back in April, specifically today the 18th, so we have a really fun episode today, and it's going to be a two-parter because Initially, I had wanted to do just one aspect of this person's life, but he's just so interesting. And as one of my favorite historical figures, I felt he deserved a little bit more love. So, well, love is an interesting word. Nevertheless, he deserved more time anyway. And we are doing the episode today on Vlad the Third or Vlad the Impaler. And yes, I am well aware that this man is popular in a super bad way, but my last episode on vampires really got me like in a vampire mood, and I thought I'd give this lengthy and detailed account of his life because he's often misunderstood as a guy who drank blood and impaled his own people for fun slash boredom, I don't know. And I mean, like, he did, um, but not always for fun. And he was so much more than that, too. So that's why he's one of my favorite historical figures. And before we can understand or even question his extreme brutality, we should understand the Wallachia of the 15th century. By the way, as its precursory uh, mention of my bad pronunciation skills. I did look up pronunciations for almost every single name and um, place in this episode, but if I'm wrong, feel free to correct me because I would like to say it the correct way. So, Wallachia was a violent area or province. I think it was a country still at that point. And when Vlad's uncle Alexander I of Aldea took over in 1397, the rule of Wallachia had changed hands so many times, violently too, each time. It had changed hands 18 times. To put this into perspective, the United States has had 18 presidents in the last 100 years, but none of the presidencies were won by violence. Seriously, that's like having a war every four years for a new leader. It's insane. Alexander led the country until his own death from an unknown illness in 1436, which for this time was still a good amount of time that he had in power. And it's worth mentioning here that another claimant to the throne did exist. And I'm going to say throne because I could not see whether it was an office or if it was a throne. Nobody was referred to as a king other than the king of Hungary. So I'm just going to say throne because it makes sense to me. But if it's office, then use that word in your head. So, he was sanctioned as the rightful voivode of Wallachia by the order of the Dracul, then led by the Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund of Luxembourg. Sigismund created the order of the dragon to enlist countries and noblemen in the fight or the crusade against the Ottoman Empire's expansion into Europe. And this was a very real threat. They had taken over Constantinople. I mean, they were just expanding everywhere. So they were very worried about the Ottomans. And that makes a lot of sense because the Ottomans were a very real threat to Europe at that point. Sigismund, the reigning Hungarian monarch at the time, had named Alexander's half-brother 
Vlad II, Dracul, as the lawful voivode of Wallachia. The only problem with Vlad asserting this right to the position was that Alexander had the support of the Ottoman Empire, which allowed Wallachia to rule itself autonomously so long as it acknowledged that it was part of the Ottoman Empire and sent tribute or money and military support for all of the Ottomans' endeavors. Once Alexander died, however, Vlad II seized his opportunity, and with the Hungarians backing him, he took power in 1436. This became an issue, not even a year later, when his benefactor and, interesting note, the last of the Luxembourg family line, Sigismund, died. Hungary didn't really have much power now that the Holy Roman Emperor wasn't its king, and Vlad now found himself having to pay homage to Murad II of the Ottoman Empire. In the summer of 1438, he was forced to assist in the invasion of the neighboring Transylvania. The voivode of Transylvania, John Hunyadi, wasn't about that life, though, and personally went to Wallachia to convince Vlad II to join his cause against the Ottomans. With Vlad's help, John was able to successfully fight off an Ottoman army in Transylvania. Murad II obviously didn't like this, so he ordered Vlad to join him in Gallipoli, where, of course, he and his three sons were taken, taken prisoner because it was a trap. And I mean, come on, duh. You can't commit an act of war against a country that large and then expect them to just be cool about it. Anyway, John then invaded Wallachia and installed Vlad's cousin, Basareb II, as voivode. Now, Vlad II was eventually released from Ottoman control, but he was forced to leave behind his two youngest sons, Vlad III, our subject, and his younger brother, Radu. He had to leave them behind as hostages of the Ottoman court in the event that he got ideas about helping John Hunyadi or any other enemy of the Turks again. Now, while in Ottoman prison, it's possible that Vlad and Radu were tortured and actually imprisoned for a time before being treated as merely political prisoners of the court. Vlad was 11 and Radu was 9 around this point, so we can assume that it had a profound effect on their upbringings. It is, however, known that they absorbed the scientific and medical breakthroughs that occurred during their time in the Sultan's court. During John's long war with the Turks, Vlad did as he was told and kept out of it. But after seven years, he could not resist the call of war and sent 4,000 horsemen to fight against the Ottomans during the Crusade of Varna. And in this, he did have some success. He captured the Ottoman fortress at Giorgio in 1445, which made them give him a little bit more credit than he'd previously had. And if you're like me and you're thinking, okay, what about your kids, Vlad III and Radu? Well, Vlad II was convinced that they had been, and I quote, butchered for the sake of Christian peace. But Vlad and Radu at this point were perfectly fine with the Sultan, though this move definitely put their lives more in danger than they had ever been. Vlad II ended up making a peace agreement with the Ottomans again, in 1446 or 1447, it's not documented which year. This move 
pissed off John Hunyadi because he'd continually helped this dude, only to have him go back to the Ottomans each time. So, as one would, John invaded Wallachia as a result and forced Vlad to flee from his home in Tarkovista to an unnamed nearby village. Now, it has been named in some of the other articles that I referenced, but it wasn't, it was different each time. So I'm just going to say unnamed nearby village where John's forces or John himself, it's not known, killed him. And then they took Marseille, his oldest son, who was with him and blinded and buried him alive. Oof. After the peace agreement had been made. Vlad and Radu were allowed to go back to Wallachia, presumably because their use as prisoners was no longer necessary, or maybe the Ottomans wanted to put them there um, to secure the country once again as a suzerainty, and I'm not sure if I'm saying that correct, a suzerainty, something like that, um, of the Ottoman Empire, which just means that they were allowed to rule autonomously, but... Um, they were definitely meant to pay tribute to the Ottoman Empire. Now, Rome did this quite often. And the most famous example, there's many famous examples, but I'm going to take Egypt um, under the later Ptolemies, the last of which being Cleopatra, as an example of what that might be. So they were under the Roman Empire. However, they were allowed and had to have their own monarchy and whatnot. So that's the end of Vlad's dad, Vlad Dracul. So let's talk about that name real quick, because it's the subject of a lot of talk online. So in medieval Romanian, the word Dracul translated to dragon. This was a title that Vlad took as one of the original members of the Order of the Dragon. Remember, this was created by Sigismund of Luxembourg, and this was created by the Holy Roman Emperor, in other words, to stop the Ottoman Empire's expansion into Europe. We might know it as a crusade, but nevertheless, it was the Order of the Dragon. So Vlad III assigned his name, Dragulia, and Draculia in two of his letters in his lifetime. So we know he went by the Slavonic genitive form of Draculia, or son of Dracula. In modern Romanian, however, this translates to devil because of course it does. So into Vlad III's life. Vlad III was born in Transylvania, in Sigiswara, when his father lived there, before he was taken prisoner the first time by the Ottomans, obviously. And most of his early and formative years are spent with the Turks, so we don't have a ton of info on who he was or how he was treated, other than that he really wasn't harmed much outside of when he first got there as a political prisoner. He does not take long to resurface, however, as a claimant to Wallachia. After John Hunyadi kills Vlad II, he joins forces with Vladislav II of Wallachia, who he'd installed as the Wallachian ruler. They launch an all-out campaign against the Ottoman Empire in September of 1448. Vladislav is like the guy that Vlad's dad never was. He's a strong Wallachian, he doesn't take shit from the Turks of the Ottoman Empire, and what's more, he's loyal to John Hunyadi. While Vlad had the support of the Ottomans to take Wallachia back from Vladislav and John, they can't very well support a war with those two on two different fronts, 
and give them their full support in taking back the country. So he doesn't have the largest military contingency with him when he goes back to his homeland. That being said, Vlad is smart. He knows that John and Vladislav are out fighting the Ottomans, thus leaving their country mostly unprotected. So Vlad takes an army of Ottoman soldiers and takes back Georgiou. He strengthens it and is installed back in Wallachia as the ruler for the first time. Hunyadi's deputy asks Vlad to come meet with him after this, and having learned the lessons that his father did not, tells him, no thanks, I'm good. And actually, um, his letter to him is as follows. And by the way, the names were in brackets on this letter, so all names were assumed and not exactly written as sounds, though the other parts of the letter are accurate. So it states, We bring you news that Nicholas Vizanai writes to us and asks us to be so kind as to come to him until John Hunyadi returns from the war. We are unable to do this because an emissary from Nicopolis came to us and said with great certainty that Murad II had defeated Hunyadi. If we come to Vizanai now, the Ottomans could come and kill both you and us. Therefore, we ask you to have patience until we see what has happened to Hunyadi. If he returns from the war, we will meet him and we will make peace with him. But if you will be our enemies now, and if something happens, you will have to answer for it before God. And that was Vlad's letter to the counselor of, counselors of Brashov. After three months or so, literally only three months, as the ruler of Wallachia, Vladislav II came back from war. He was battle-worn, but easily able to put up enough of a fight for Vlad to flee back to the Ottoman Empire to regroup. He spent some time thinking about his plan of attack or rethinking it and maybe examining his, his life heretofore, who knows, first in Edirne and then in Moldavia where his uncle Bogdan II ruled. And here is a whole lot of back and forth, um, throne stealing, but in Moldavian, you know, um, but I'll spare you all of that and sum it up with Bogdan was super murdered and his son and Vlad fled the country to make a peace agreement again with John Hunyadi, who agreed that upon Vladislav II's death, they and their family could choose the new ruler. Some back and forth happened here too, and Vlad ended up returning to Moldavia. He resurfaces again in Hungary when John Hunyadi tasks him with defending the Transylvanian border. He again, this time with Hungarian support, attempts to take Wallachia back from Vladislav. I don't know why he chooses to do this at this point, because Vladislav is all for hung Hungary and John Hunyadi too, so who knows? Whatever. Either way, Vladislav is killed, and Vlad is now the ruler of Wallachia. It was spread around the country that Vlad beheaded Vladislav himself, but it's not entirely clear whether this is true or not. It definitely could have happened, though. He was a powerful warrior in his own right, and if you add a ruthless and cunning mind to that equation, it does sum up to a believable story. He sent his first letter to the burghers of Brashov, which was then the center of the Wachian boyars. He vowed to protect and attack. No, just kidding. Um, he did vow to protect them. And in that letter, he also said, and I quote, 
When a man or a prince is strong and powerful, he can make peace as he wants to. But when he is weak, a stronger one will come and do what he wants to him. Now, the article I read said that this is an early show of authoritarian on Vlad III's part, but I don't think so. At this time, that was true, and he had firsthand evidence of that with his own father. It must have created a massive amount of resentment to be abandoned by his father's failed endeavors and then just chalked up to a religious sacrifice when he wanted to go to war again. So in this respect, Vlad, and in this only one, I get you. Man, I get you. You got some well-earned daddy issues. That being said, he wasted no time in executing those in government who he felt had either betrayed his father and brother or plotted against his return. And in a very red wedding type fashion, he invited all of the Wallachian boyars and government officials to a large banquet, knowing that one or more of them would challenge his right to rule that night over Wallachia. As everyone was starting their drinks and maybe appetizers, who knows, Vlad's army crept up behind everyone there and stabbed them once or twice to debilitate them. Ouch, but wait. He then had them impaled while they were still twitching. Yeah, let's talk about impalement, because I think we hear Vlad the Impaler and we just don't think like, oh, you know, how brutal that was, but (laughs) let's talk about it for a minute. It's one of the most brutal and horrifying means of execution, and not just because it's painful to start with, but also because it takes so long to actually die. Now, prior to my explanations of this, they get real gross. So FYI, if you have kids listening or you're just um, sensitive to these things, just so you know, you may want to skip this part, but let's go on. So impalement has been used in various forms since Babylon existed, and even then it was considered a harsh punishment. And here's why. The main method of impalement is as such. The victim is laid down on their stomach, usually naked, or with only a shirt on. Their rectum or vagina is then sliced open to make a larger opening for the stake, and the blood is staunched with an absorbent paste to keep them from bleeding out. The stake is then inserted into their bodies, pushed up until it comes up out of the mouth or the head, the neck, the chest, or the back. Then the stake and the prisoner are stood up and popped into a hole in the ground where they can take hours or even in extreme cases up to 18 days to die. Sometimes the stakes were not sharpened, they were rounded so as to avoid puncturing any internal organs so that it would take much, much longer for them to die. Other methods of impalement include gaunching, which drops the accused onto a large metal hook where they may land on their stomach and with the hook, you know, coming out of their backs. So they're impaled that way. And if that weren't enough of a punishment, the executioner then sits next to them, torturing them further. And gaunching wasn't done often because it was particularly cruel. Because not only do you have all of that going on, it's still going to take you up to 18 days to die. (laughs) Assuming that they didn't puncture, you know, a major organ upon throwing you on a hook. Um... While it wasn't done often, other forms of it were. So Dutch slave owners 
in the 1700s when they had wayward slaves or rebellious slaves, they would hang them as an example by their rib cage on the gallows. So awful, 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 awful. Impalement is serious. Like when you see those pictures and stuff and it looks bad, it's way worse. It's worse than you could ever imagine. And one of the ways that they would end your suffering quickly, if they felt bad for you because you were just like begging to die, is they would just push you further down the stake. And sometimes those rounded stakes, to keep people from doing even that, um, that was one of the reasons they were rounded, was that even if someone did try to push you down, it was unlikely that they would succeed unless they really, really, really tried. And it was also unlikely that your own body weight would push you further down the stake and promote more blood loss for you to die quicker. So they really thought that one through. So... After Vlad had over 100 of these men impaled, he took their money and their property and gave it to his trusted advisors or his friends. And where were the Ottomans during all this? Well, for one thing, impaling their own enemies because they did that too. And it's possible that that's where Vlad learned to do this. But in this case, they were chilling out for a sec because Vlad was still sending them their tribute. So they really had no issues. Hungary, however, did. So, John Hunyadi died and was replaced by his son, Ladislaus. He did not like Vlad at, the, at all and felt he was in too good with the Ottomans to ever really support or be loyal to Hungary. So, he ordered the boyars and the burghers to support Vladislav II's brother, who was named, oh, wait for it, because it's good, Dan. Dan III. In a country of Vlad's, Vladislavs, Sigismunds, Radus, you go with Dan. And you know what? You go with Dan three times. <laughs> Cheese and crackers. That's, that's terrible. That's a terrible name. Sorry if your name is Dan and you're listening. It's not against you and your name. It's just back then. It was just such a shock to see like, oh, Dan the third. Okay. Anyway, he was not the only challenger to power that Vlad had. He also had an illegitimate son of his father's, his half-brother, Vlad the monk to contend with. And here, my friends, is where we are going to cut it off and say this is part one because we have so much more and so many more impalements and other weird and odd things that he did. But I really want to give it the time of day and also talk about who knew about this. I mean, it was he was doing it as an as a an example to others. So surely like people would have stopped him and we'll talk about all that, but that will be next week. So while you're waiting, you can rate and review my show. You can follow me on Instagram. You can reach out to me on Instagram, all kinds of fun stuff. Or if you have any submission ideas, especially from your area of the world, I would love to hear them. I had one that we um, that I'm about to turn into a show as well or an episode. I just like, you know, some things you really want to get off your chest. And this episode was on my heart. So I wanted to get it down and get it onto the books <laughs> as such. So yeah, let me know what you would like to hear about, what you'd like me to do my research thing on. And I'd love to hear from you. Until then, you guys... I'll see you next week. Bye.